Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is November 18th, 2006, and we are back after our week off last week and the big trip to Las Vegas for the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4. I have so much to say about the conference, but we're going to save all that for the end of the program because we have an amazing interview on tap for you this week. The guest is Peter Davenport, director of the National UFO Reporting Center. Peter Davenport has been the director there for over a decade, so he's got his finger on the pulse of what's going on today as far as UFO sightings are concerned. And what I like about our conversation this week is that Usually when you hear Peter Davenport on the radio, he is discussing contemporary cases. He's got a couple witnesses on with him, and they're talking about a UFO sighting that took place, you know, in the last couple of months. For this interview, it's just pure Peter Davenport, and we're talking about the National UFO Reporting Center, how he came upon the job, the trends and changes he's observed at the center since he took over, and just overall, we're really going to dig into the details of the National UFO Reporting Center. Additionally, we're going to be discussing ufology, UFOs in the media, the government's role in the UFO phenomenon. I throw the classic chestnut of give me your best cases, and Peter talks about a handful of seriously good UFO cases that he's collected at the National UFO Reporting Center during his tenure. And we're going to talk about the Todd Seas case that many people in ufology have been talking about for quite some time. We're going to discuss that in depth as Peter was one of the very first people on that story. And as is the case here at Banal of America Audio, tons and tons more. I've wanted to interview Peter for the show for a long time, so when we finally got a chance to sit down for our conversation, I already had a ton of questions for him, and we just cover a lot of ground here in this interview. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Peter Davenport, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Peter Davenport is the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, and he has been since July of 1994. He was born in St. Louis, Missouri, where he lived at the age of 14. As a boy, he attended high school in St. Louis, Ethiopia, and New Hampshire. He received his undergraduate education at Stanford University in California, where he earned bachelor's degrees in both Russian and biology, and a translator's certificate in Russian. His graduate education was completed at the University of Washington in Seattle, where he earned an MS degree in genetics and biochemistry of fish from the College of Fisheries, as well as an MBA degree in finance and international business from the Graduate School of Business. He has had an active interest in the UFO phenomenon from his early boyhood. He experienced his first UFO sighting over the St. Louis Municipal Airport in the summer of 1954, and he investigated his first UFO case during the summer of 1965 in Exeter, New Hampshire. He has been witness to several anomalous events, possibly UFO-related, including a dramatic sighting over Baja, California in February 1990, and several nighttime sightings over Washington State during 1992. In addition to being the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, Peter is a current member of MUFON and is a former co-state section director and former director of investigation for the Washington State chapter of MUFON. You can find out more information about Peter Davenport and the National UFO Reporting Center at www.ufocenter.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on August 23rd, 2006. Peter Davenport on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. I want to welcome as my special guest this week, Peter Davenport. He is the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. He's been investigating the UFO phenomenon since 1965, so he's got 40-plus years uh, in the field, 
He's done a tremendous amount of work for the field of ufology, and it's just a great pleasure to have him on the show. As I said, he's the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. That's the hotline where you take where they take calls uh, of UFO reports from people all over the country and presumably all over the world. We'll find that out. And you can find more information about the National UFO Reporting Center at www.nufoRC.org or ufocenter.com. Peter Davenport, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. I'm delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to this one. Awesome, awesome. I'm really excited about talking to you. I've been trying to get you on the show for a while now, so I'm brimming with questions and, and really looking forward to it. Good. Uh, let's start out with your background, your bio, how you came to become interested in the UFO phenomenon and sort of how your experience as a researcher evolved. Yeah. Well, I think I'm correct in saying that my first experience with UFOs was at the age of six. Wow. This was July of 1954. I was uh, sitting at a drive-in theater in St. Louis, right on the southern edge of the St. Louis airport, Lambert Field, and I, together with my family members and no doubt hundreds and hundreds of other people, were witness to one of the most dramatic UFO events I've ever heard about. It was a brilliantly bright red object about the color of a red traffic signal, as big as a full moon in the night sky. It was oval in shape, and it was giving off bright red light that illuminated the area for quite a distance around us. And people were getting out of their cars at the drive-in theater, ignoring the movie, and staring up in the night sky at this object. That was my first experience, so far as I'm aware, with a UFO. UFO sighting, I presume, I, or is a better way to put it. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I've been interested in UFOs, perhaps since that event, certainly since the 1960s when I was a teenager. Uh, I would read everything I could lay my hands on. Then, in 1965, shortly after I had graduated from high school up in New Hampshire, we had a very dramatic event that involved a number of people, but principally two police officers from Exeter, New Hampshire, mm -hmm. and an 18-year-old hitchhiker. His name was Muscarello, I happen to remember, allegedly had a very dramatic sighting. In fact, there was a series of sightings that night in the vicinity of Exeter, New Hampshire, and I was working for the local town newspaper, the Derry News. Derry, New Hampshire was where I lived. Many people may recognize that. That was... Uh, one, the uh, residence of Alan Shepard, our first astronaut in space, grew up in the East Derry, New Hampshire, and also it was the home of Robert Frost, the celebrated poet who taught high school in Derry, New Hampshire. But I was assigned by my newspaper to go up to Exeter and do a story on this event in September of 1965. It occurred on the 3rd of September. I investigated within a matter of days and published an article in our local newspaper on what happened up there. I didn't know it at the time, but that case was to become a celebrated case yeah. uh, known as the incident at Exeter. So you're right. My experience as an investigator goes back uh, to 1965, 41 years, and uh, I've been intrigued by the subject ever since. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Now, how did you um, – like I was saying to you when we were trying to set up the interview uh, – I've heard you on countless occasions on, on the Jeff Renz show, Coast to Coast AM, talking about uh, cases that you have that have come up in, in recent months and what have you uh, when you're on their shows. 
but what I had never really heard is how you came to take over the National UFO Reporting Center. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Because that's historically important, I think, to the field of ufology, and it's sort of fallen between the cracks as you're continuing to do your work. You know, we gotta we got to look back and fill that gap in, I think. Yeah, well, I commend you for your interest in fine detail like that, because that's the type of thing you have to do to investigate or explain any phenomenon. But I think I can answer your question with two words, sheer misfortune. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, back in July of 1994, mm-hmm. I was on the telephone one Friday night with a friend, and at the end of our conversation, he said, oh, by the way, did you know that Bob Gribble, the gentleman who founded the National UFO Reporting Center back in October of 1924, yeah. did you know that Bob Gribble is considering shutting down the hotline? He had run it for 20 years at that point, and I suspect he was just exhausted by it, if his experience has been or was anything like mine. Yeah. Well, I made the mistake of calling Bob. (laughs) I knew him. Uh, I had known him for three years or more at that point, and I said, you know, Bob, uh, I've applied to you to work as a volunteer on the hotline, and you've you've not accepted my, my volunteer services, but... That is a job that I would consider doing. And he said, instantly, Peter, it's yours. And I should have known better than to (laughs) accept it. I should have turned my back on it and walked away because it has completely re-engineered my life from what it was at the time and what it probably would have become over the last 12 years that I've been doing this job. But it was just about... uh, In fact, it was the 26th of August, 1994, so I'm coming up on two days from now will be Saturday, the 26th of August. That'll be the 12th anniversary of my taking over the hotline. Wow. And uh, it has been a fascinating experience. Uh, It's completely, completely changed my view of what reality may be. I'm not sure I have a better handle on what reality is, but it's changed my view of what reality might be if we had enough information uh, to explain those things that are taking place around us that remain a mystery. And now why do you say you uh, changed your view of reality? Is that just because you got sort of sheer number of different types of cases that you were like, there's so much more to this yeah. than I thought, is that sort of thing? No. Well, I believe by 1994... I was well-versed in, for example, the crop formation uh, phenomenon, which I think is UFO-related. I was aware of the abduction phenomenon, of course. I was aware of the animal mutilation phenomenon and all of these things. But what I think I was not aware of, or not as aware of as I am today, I believe, is how extensive all of these events, all of these phenomena may be in our lives. and how frequent they may, frequently they may occur on our planet. And that's the one thing that taking 20, 30, or 40 reports per day can do to a person yeah. because it alerts him or her to what is going on around us and which, were it not for programs precisely like this one, the American people would not be aware of. Clearly their govern, government seems to want to keep them in the dark with regard to the phenomenon of UFOs, and again, that underscores the value of your program and this interview and the many, many other people who are engaged in serious investigation into the UFO phenomenon. Oh, well, thanks. 
over the course of the 12 years you've been doing uh, the hotline, have you noticed any sort of trends uh, as far as uh, when, first of all, like when you get the reports? Uh, is there a peak time of day, peak time of year, or uh, sort of any sort of uh, trend as far as like the people that are making the reports? Yeah. People ask me questions like that, uh, questions about the statistics of UFO sightings, UFO reports, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the, probably the most accurate answer is I have not seen any trends that I think are worth even mentioning. Wow. Now, we have looked at our data with regard to nighttime or versus daytime sightings, and it appears that about 55 or 60 percent, I think it was, of all the reports we have on file were of sightings after daylight hours, that is, during darkness. Yeah. But that's no great surprise given that oftentimes these things we call UFOs are seen to give off light, in some instances very, very bright light. We can talk about one of those cases later. And so I think it would be expected that people would be apt to see them most uh, most frequently at night because of the difference uh, or the contrast between the brightness of the light and the dark background of the night sky. Yeah. But that's pure conjecture on my part. Uh, I think the only real, uh, really substantial answer to your question is one can see UFOs at any time of day or night. And uh, people do. That's evident from our hotline, from our website, where uh, people report these sightings. And uh, now the website's up and running, and, and it's been up for a while and everything. Have you yeah. found uh, a lot of people are sort of uh, reporting cases that they hadn't reported, like in the previous 10, 20 years? Like I'm trying to say is like, let's say somebody had a sighting in 1973 or something. Now they're coming to the website to report that because they they hadn't known or had a place to report it back no. then when it first happened? That's a very good question, Tim. Uh, yes, you're exactly correct. Uh, because of programs like this and the many, many other television and radio programs and public appearances I have had over the last 12 years, I have been moderately, uh, and I say only moderately successful in getting people to report their past sightings. People call me all the time saying, gee, I, I've been listening to you for 10 years on the radio. Uh, do you want me to submit my report of the six aliens we saw walk through our apartment on <laughs> such and such a date? And I say, absolutely. First of all, why did you not report it immediately? Yeah. And secondly, why do you want somebody to give you permission to report it? Yeah. It is very frustrating to me. I... I'm a little, I have to be honest with you, I'm more than a little disappointed in some of the American people in the sense that it, so many of them seem to need approval or permission to do such and such. My, my clear message to everybody who is listening to us at this moment is if you have ever in your lifetime or if any of your family members ever in their lifetimes have seen what they sincerely believe was a UFO, be sure to write that information down because it is preciously important to get those reports uh, recorded in written form. People call me up all the time. They want to talk about their report. 
<laughs> I want them not to talk about it. That's like racing your engine at a red stoplight. Yeah. I want them to write down the details of their sighting. A written report is worth a thousand times more, maybe 10,000 times more than an oral report. And yet trying to get people to write these things down is almost impossible. I don't know why that is. Yeah, I was just going to ask you why do you think that is. Um, and one of the important things about the uh, UFO uh, reporting center is that you guys do anonymous, you take the anonymous reports, try to keep it as anonymous as possible. That should really help people uh, to make the reports. A lot of people are scared to do something like that. You know. Absolutely. First of all, I don't know why Americans should be scared of anything. Uh, but they are. You're absolutely correct. People will call up and say, are you part of the government? I don't want to have anything to do with them. <laughs> or Maybe they'll come and knock on my doors, and I say, who's they? Yeah. Who's going to knock on your door? Well, it could be the FBI, or it just it does get to me. Uh, it has begun to get to me after 12 years of it. My response to those people is stand up, stiffen your spine, stand up straight, and speak your peace. Let your neighbors, your fellow countrymen, most of all, let your government know what you have seen mm -hmm. and say it loudly and clearly and grammatically correctly so other people can understand what it was that you experienced. Until we get the American people accustomed to doing that, we're going to have trouble not only in ufology but in every other field of endeavor in this country, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, now, this actually, this question sort of is born out of my own personal experience because uh, just a little background. I had uh, at work one night, a friend of mine had said he'd seen uh, UFO uh, earlier in the night, and I was asking him sort of uh, to elaborate on it, and so I could try and find out more information about it. Um, and so that sort of led me to this question because after I was talking to him, I was sort of thinking to myself, you know, I really don't even know the right questions to ask him. So, uh, what's like the most important? data to collect if one witnesses a UFO? What's, what's, what should they keep in mind that they should definitely want to make note of? Well, generally, what the person should do is, first of all, sit down and write down everything they can remember about their sighting, what the time and date were. That's very important. Mm -hmm. People are calling me all the time and saying, well, I think I had a UFO sighting, but I don't remember if it was in the 90s or the 60s. <laughs> uh, was it April or maybe it was November? Well, the problem there is what we like to do is get those reports so we can compare that report with another report that it may have occurred somewhere else in the country or the world yeah. on the same date at about the same time. Mm -hmm. But you can't do that if the times are not accurate. So I, the most the most important uh, data point, in my opinion, is the time and date of an occurrence. A lot of people, particularly journalists, uh, reporters, will call up and say, have there been any sightings in our little town right here, just up to, to Birch Street? Well, my response to them is, it's unimportant whether there were other sightings in your community. What is most important is whether there were any other sightings anywhere in the country or the world at about the same time, on the same date. And I say that because it appears to me that these objects that we've called UFOs for now just over 59 years are capable of traveling at dramatically rapid velocities, yeah. thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of miles per hour. Uh, unimaginable speeds, velocities, relative to our technology. 
So they can be here one minute and perhaps be in Japan five minutes later. Yeah. So it is the temporal comparison rather than the geographic comparison that is so important. And yet all journalists fail to observe that fact. So getting back to your question, the most important subjects are the time, the date, and just a rational, hopefully grammatically correct statement of fact about what the witness has seen. And equally important is independent reports from other witnesses who may have seen the same incident. And I say independent because you don't want people to get together and collaborate over coffee yeah. over what they see, what they have seen. What you want all of the witnesses to do, ideally, is sit down and each person writes independently of all of the other witnesses what he or she saw so that the, the reports can be compared with one another. They are independent reports. The value of this we've seen on many occasions because the different people to the, uh, who are witness to the same event will oftentimes see and remember and report different elements of the event. And what you want to do is get all of that information from all of the witnesses. That's our objective. Yeah. Um, and now as far as, uh, now we sort of talked about uh, trends as far as calls that come in. Now what about trends developing over the course of your tenure uh, with regards to the advancement of technology? I mean, yeah. People, it uh, seems like everybody has a cell phone now, which should make it easier for them to uh, call in a case pretty easily, especially if they're right there. Yeah. And also, a lot of these cameras have, uh, a lot of these phones have cameras on them, and that's a really new advancement in the last couple of years. You would think yeah. that that would produce a lot of new UFO video or pictures. Yeah. Um, have you noticed any sort of trend developing in that where the reports are getting better um, as a result of that? Yeah, good question. And what I can what I can say in response is, yes, some technology helps, but there's also a downside to it. Yeah. For example, the the first big boon to ufology was the telephone and people's ability to call somebody and report what they saw. They don't have to travel three thousand miles to report their sighting to the National UFO Reporting Center. Yeah. Although phones have been around for a long time since the twenties or thirties. The next big advancement, I would say, was the Internet. Suddenly, people could report their sightings not just over the telephone orally, but in written form. And as I've already discussed, a written report is vastly superior to an oral report. Yeah. So the Internet was a great boon to ufology, and not only to witnesses to UFO events, but to the investigators themselves, because suddenly the investigators can post their information, mm -hmm. giving access to it to almost anybody who's on the Internet, and also investigators can hand information back and forth. Uh, this has happened only since the advent of the Internet or its availability to the common man. Now, you mentioned the cell phone, and you're exactly correct. Ideally, in an ideal world that runs just perfectly, the cell phone would be a boon to ufology, just as the Internet has been. Yeah. Unfortunately, it turns out to be quite something else, some, something different, because what the cell phone, I, I think the cell phone has re-engineered, to a large degree, re-engineered our culture, because 
Whereas when I was a kid back in the 50s, in order to make a long-distance call, you had to do it from the telephone that sat in the hallway of your family home within earshot of your parents. Yeah. Well, today, how many kids have cell phones? It must be in the tens of millions. Yeah. And they are out of earshot of parental supervision and guidance, so they can do and say anything they want. And, in fact, that has been... Uh, it has been the bane of my life over the last year because whereas, say, five or ten years ago, maybe 5% of the calls coming into the hotline were hoax calls, mm -hmm. today it ranges between 50 and 90% of wow. the calls I receive are hoaxes being placed by young kids or teenagers or college kids with their cell phones and during many of those reports or phone calls they just yell obscenities, the most triple X rated obscenities I've ever heard in my life. And it is threatening to cause me to shut down the hotline. I just cannot do this anymore. And I may just shift to Internet only. If people want to submit reports, they must be in written form and they must be submitted using our online report form. Yeah, that's that's just that's a shame. That's really just too bad. It just makes me angry, to be honest with you. It makes me more than angry, and it's probably a good thing that these people are not known to me personally <laughs> because I would try to solve the problem yeah. in a personal fashion. And what do you think, uh, aside from um, teenage hijinks, um, you know, let's not even go there. Let's not even discuss that because I don't want to even waste time on them. But let's talk about um, people who are hoaxing the calls, the hoax calls. You know what I mean? Um, yes. Where, what do you think is to blame for those those people that are hoax that are producing the hoaxes and not just the hoax calls and the hoax reports, but also these hoax videos like that recent Australian one that came out? I compliment you for the question because that's a very important question from my vantage point. And uh, hosts and newspaper reporters seldom ask that question, but it is a very very interesting phenomenon in my opinion. It is an interesting statement about a significant majority of, or a significant fraction, I should say, of the American population. People calling and essentially lying about what they allegedly saw, but in point of fact, they didn't. Yeah. Why do people do that? It is a mystery to me, but you're right. That's a very significant issue, why people would do that. And in fact, any UFO investigator is confronted with that the reality of that tragic situation, they have to weed out that which is true from that which is not. Uh, because if you start basing your decisions on information that is not true, which is hoaxed, then you have a really um, uh, unsavory situation because you could be led down a path that is uh, falsely created. However, let me say that it is quite possible, in most cases, I feel, I am able to detect uh, most hoaxes, I think, most cases that are not true, most sighting reports that are not true, and people may say, well, that's not possible. Well, if they had taken as many UFO reports over the telephone as I have taken, I suspect they would be of a different opinion, because there are many... I find parameters, there are many characteristics of a false report that I have come to recognize that are very useful 
flags uh, with regard to every report. So I feel that I'm pretty successful at weeding out most of the false reports. And I used to say that probably 70% of the reports that came to our center were not of genuine UFOs. Today, I think it's probably closer to 90%. Wow. And although I nevertheless post some of those reports that are cases of mistaken identity or out-and-out -out hoax, just to let the readers at our website know that I am sensitive to this type of case and that I'm alert uh, to them and I'm trying to weed them out to the best of my ability. Yeah. Now, when you get somebody that calls up and they're trying to sell you on a bogus UFO story, uh, do you usually, do you, at what point do you uh, sort of pull the plug on that? Do you let them know right away or you sort of humor them and then just uh, after they're off the phone, you know, just toss it in the waistband? <laughs> You're you, you have very good insight into this field, Tim. I, I compliment you. Thank you. Uh, it, my response to calls like that is variable. It depends on my mood and my <laughs> attitude, yeah. frankly. If I'm in a persnickety mood, uh, I'll, I, I could yell at them. I could uh, hang up on them precipitately. Or in some cases, I'll toy with them. I remember one call in point of fact. This, is, this was a very interesting call. You may have heard of the, the celebrated Phoenix Lights case yeah. that occurred over Phoenix uh, Thursday night, March 13, 1997. Well, a couple of years after that event had occurred, a young man called me up and he said, uh, he asked me if I knew what the real cause of the Phoenix Lights event was, which he certainly knew. And I assured him that uh, I didn't know what it was, but I didn't think that the objects that were reported, had been reported, were of terrestrial origin. He said, oh, yes, they were. They were U.S. Air Force A-10 warthogs flying in formation. Well, I knew immediately that this could not be the case for many, many reasons that I'll gloss over here. But I toyed with him for a little bit, and uh, I asked him, he, he described how he had seen five A-10 warthogs in very tight formation flying at night uh, with their landing gears down. And I said, uh, well, why didn't you hear them? You've already reported that this event was silent. And there was a long pause. And he said, well, they, they had their power off. And I toyed with him like playing a large fish on light tackle <laughs> for a long time. And the bottom line was that he was attempting to get me to believe something that clearly not only was not true, but could not be true. What he didn't know is that I hold a commercial rating, a rating as a commercial pilot. Mm -hmm. I've served as a flight instructor in my past, and I am somewhat familiar with the A-10, what it looks like, what its systems uh, are, how they operate, and so on and so forth. And I pointed out to him that no pilot in his right mind would fly in tight formation at night with his lights off, with his landing gear down, and with power reduced to zero so that the engines could not he be heard even from a thousand feet below. And he quickly realized that he had made some very egregious technical flaws yeah. in his description of the event. but. That's a lot of words to say I toyed with him to get out of him as much information as I could, hoping that I could somehow learn 
why he was trying to mislead me, why he was trying to make me believe that the Phoenix Lights event was caused by four Air Force aircraft flying in tight formation over Mesa, Arizona. It's just not possible. So, uh, it, other times, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I will get very cross with the people, particularly those young people who call 10, 15, 25 times in a row and shout obscenities at me. Yeah, you don't need that kind of grief. Exactly. Are you, now, I saw on your website you were thinking of uh, putting their phone numbers up. Uh, repeat offenders would, would have phone numbers posted. Is that something you're considering doing? Well, uh, we have to stop it somehow. Yeah, that might be a good way of going they about doing that. are forcing me into a corner, and frankly, I will not allow, allow the National UFO Reporting Center to be to be backed into a corner and crushed like a beetle under the heel of a jackboot without a fight. And if people don't think I'm capable of doing uh, something really evil to them, <laughs> they should reconsider. Yeah. Because they, I, I go, as you know, I go on radio programs very, very frequently. Some of those programs are large programs with tens of millions of listeners. I think I have bigger guns than these young people who call and hoax me. That's for sure. Now, what do you think? Uh, what caused what caused the, uh, the the number for the UFO reporting center to become so prevalent all of a sudden? I mean, because uh, the cell phones they I've seen kids with cell phones for like the last four four or five years, about mm -hmm. approximately. But it sounds like this thing has just sort of started in the last year or so. Yeah. Um, was that a result of your appearance on the ABC UFO special where, like, millions of people saw you or or just that uh, you're on the radio all the time? Or is there something else that sort of, like, got the word out on the UFO reporting center? Yeah. I can only guess at what the answer or explanation might be for that. I simply don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think it may be the case that now that people have – many people have gotten cell phones – They've learned how to use them. They've learned what they can do with them. Combine that with the fact that this, these younger generations are not really, not really being carefully raised. They don't have a sense of uh, good manners or consideration for other people or any of that. Yeah. And this is a very unsavory combination of events that uh, leads to the problem I'm I'm looking at. So. I can only guess, but uh, somehow we have to change it. Yeah. And to sort of segue that to us, a question that's sort of been coming up a lot with my guests this season on the show is, uh, uh, on the other end of that spectrum, uh, where do you think the young people are – how come do you think they're not really gravitating toward ufology as a science um, like they were in the 60s, 70s, and like when no. you got involved in ufology? I'm, I'm young for the field. I'm only 27 at this point, so – you know, I'm one of the younger generation of the people in ufology, um, but I'm pretty lonely here as <laughs> as one of the younger generation. Where, why do you think there isn't uh, more young people in ufology, and how can we get them in? in no. Well, let me compliment you for not having not only having developed a serious minded interest in ufology, but having founded a radio program that allows people like me to get the word out and share with our fellow citizens what appears to be going on. I think it's very, very important information. In fact, if it's true, it is the greatest scientific discovery in the history of man's science. Mm -hmm. We are not alone in this galaxy. But I'm not sure that young people aren't interested in this field. In fact, 
my suspicion is they're very interested in it. The problem may be with the press and with the entertainment and advertising industries, which more often than not don't address the issue in a serious-minded fashion. In fact, I, I would estimate, if I had to guess, I would say that everything the American people hear or see or experience or encounter about the UFO phenomenon is almost certainly dead wrong, somewhere between 90 and 99 percent, let wow. me say. When I make that statement, I have in mind things like Saturday morning cartoons. I don't know if you've looked at children's cartoons on the television recently, but uh, more often than not, they're racing around with aliens and spaceships and and so on and so forth. Yeah. The the whole cartoon industry is dominated by ufology, the concept of aliens coming to Earth. Also, there are things like the advertisements during the Super Bowl, and you name it. Yeah. Uh, there are many UFO themed events in our society. Unfortunately. None of that, none of that has any bearing on the work I do. I am a scientist. I'm trained as a scientist. I'm an objective thinker by nature. And I try to limit myself to evidence and that information which I can corroborate and duplicate and so on. That is the information that is so terribly important to the American people. Yeah. Now, uh, moving on to specific sort of cases, do you have, uh, um, now before we get into the Todd C's case, because I have that as a separate bullet point here, oh, but yes. before we get to that, do you have, um, I don't want to say a favorite, but a best case or one that you think uh, is like the, the cream of the crop as far as UFO cases that you can think of right now? Oh boy, there are a bunch of them. I'm sure, yeah, you sent me, uh, you sent me probably two dozen at least, I didn't know yep. which one to pick, so I figured I'd, I'd yep. defer to you on that. Well, let me just tick off a few of what I consider to be the most most interesting in the sense that they have the best documentation of all. Yeah. The biggest one, of course, is the one I alluded to already, the Phoenix Lights case, uh, March 1997. The bottom line is five objects, each of which was, we estimate, the size of a major international airport, loitered over Phoenix and surrounding communities up to several hundred miles from Phoenix for probably upwards of 90 minutes. They were intercepted by the U.S. Air Force, which lied to the American people about this incident. And uh, it was very, very dramatic. And there were many things that occurred that night that I am not even alluding to here. We have information from inside Luke Air Force Base as to what happened there that night. And there is no doubt in my mind but what they intercepted one of at least one of these objects and the interesting thing about that case is it was the same night that president clinton who was staying down in florida at the time injured his knee huh. uh, we also have some evidence that a defense condition three was declared that night it is intriguing to consider whether it might have been declared as a result of the phoenix lights event and whether the president of the united states might have injured his knee if, in fact, that injury took place at all in the course of his being evacuated yeah. to a military safe area in response to a UFO event. Yeah. Well, there are many other cases. Uh, I think the sighting by eight 
police departments of a huge triangle over St. Clair County, Illinois. Mm -hmm. This was January 5th, the year 2000, was a very dramatic, very well-documented case. In fact, uh, there's a very nice website maintained by a gentleman whose name is Daryl Barker, works for, I think, St. Louis University, the law department, or uh, Washington U, I'm not sure which, uh, in which he documents that case magnificently well. It was a very dramatic case, and we have evidence that a UFO jumped somewhere between 8 and 20 miles, is our estimate, in under five seconds, from wow. a dead stop to a dead stop. Wow. This is not swamp gas. This is not crash dummies. This is not weather balloons or such nonsense that skeptabunkers frequently cite have for decades. Another case that I find particularly interesting was the abduction of an elk out of the Washington State Forest in front of 14 witnesses, forestry workers. They were working on the side of a hill, uh, side of a hill planting trees. This was Thursday, one or two minutes before noon. It was February 25th, 1999. Fourteen forestry workers were just about to break for lunch when their supervisor saw an object approaching their location generally, uh, following the contour of the tops of four, uh, fir trees in the area. Long story short, that object went right towards a herd of elk that had been feeding below these workers. They'd watched them all morning long while they were planting seedlings. And that object, probably no bigger than a couch, a, a van in your living room, went right up to one of the elk and lifted it off the ground and flew off with it. Whew. That happened February 25th, 1999. The reports are on our website at ufocenter.com. Another case that comes to mind, very, very dramatic, and this involved both the FAA and the U.S. Air Force, uh, it occurred in, I believe, October of 2000, late October, as I recall. It happened to a group of four men who were at a remote hunting camp up in northern Idaho. And one of the men went out of their camper to get food out of a storage bunker or storage container in his pickup. What he saw, and he was a very experienced businessman, a pilot. He was a hunter, an outdoorsman, a hiker, and so on. Very little alarmed this guy, but as he stepped up on the rear wheel of his pickup truck, the flashlight that he was carrying with him, it was about 9 o'clock at night, swept across the night sky above his head, and it illuminated something above him. He looked up, and what he saw alarmed him so profoundly that he fell to the ground and started screaming for the other uh, his friends and his brother to come out of the camper and look at what he was looking at. Wow. They came out of the camper just in time to see this huge black triangular craft that had been hovering over their camp, apparently, suddenly turn on all of its lights. It had been hovering there motionless, mm -hmm. apparently, for some period of time, turned on its lights and slowly, very slowly, started moving over the camp they were in towards a range of mountains to the east, and it tipped, when it got to the mountains, it tipped its nose up slightly and slowly worked its way up the side of this mountain range and went over 
the tops of the mountains to the east of the camp. Well, they these four men sat there talking about what they had seen, wondering what in heaven's name they'd just experienced. The two brothers decided after a couple hours that they were not going to spend the night at that camp after yeah. what they had experienced and seen. So they loaded their deer rifles, they got in their pickup, and they drove for well over an hour to the nearest town, and they spent the night in a motel room. The next morning, they drove out to the Federal Aviation Administration offices, reported what they had experienced the night before, and within 25 or 30 minutes, I was told, two F-16s, U.S. Air Force F-16s out of Utah, they believe they were, went streaking over the camp uh, at very low altitude with their afterburners on. So apparently the FAA had reported this event to the Air Force, and the hunters had GPS, handheld GPS units, so they gave exact coordinates to the FAA, and presumably that information allowed the U.S. Air Force to scramble very suddenly and fly directly over the camp. That was a very dramatic sighting. Yeah, that sounds that's a, that's amazing. Um, and uh, that sort of uh, popped a question into my head here. What what do you make of the black triangle phenomenon? Because that seems to have become a big uh, a yeah. big big portion of ufology in the last ten years or so. Um, and I'm sure you get like I, like I just heard. You know, obviously, you get a lot of black triangle cases. What do you think is uh, behind this the black triangle phenomenon? Yeah, Tim, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> but I do not believe it's the U.S. military, yeah. as many people have suggested. Many people have taken our data and said, oh, the, the data from the National UFO Reporting Center show clearly, they assure us, that such and such is taking place. Well, the, I collected the data. Yeah. There's probably nobody who's more familiar with it than I am. Mm -hmm. And I don't see those trends. And moreover, I think it's significant that the people who are making claims for our data have never contacted me to discuss it, to find out more about the data that will allow them to tighten up their conclusions. But the black triangles are a reality. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I don't believe that they are U.S. military or they come from the military. They clearly without any doubt whatsoever, are not aerodynamic devices. That is, they seem to have wings, but they don't need those wings for generating an aerodynamic lift to suspend them above the ground. They're flying through some other means or some other technology. What they are, I have no idea, none whatsoever. Would you say there's been an upswing in those uh, type reports over the course of the last uh, 20, 30 years or something like that? Because uh, I never really started hearing about them until like the last few years in, in yeah. my back research. I don't really hear too much about the black triangles. Yeah, I think that's a correct statement. I have no idea uh, where they come from, but it does seem that the reports of black triangles have become more frequent in, let's say, over the last decade mm -hmm. than was the case in the 60s or 70s when what were being reported principally were disc-shaped objects. Uh, what the significance of that might be, I have no idea. Yeah, it could be anything. There's a host of different uh, explanations for that sort of thing. Yeah. One other sort of question that came up in here and that, that popped into my head, 
that's not in my bullet points I wanted to ask you uh, before I forgot, <laughs> was uh, what about uh, reports from pilots? Do you get many reports from pilots? I know there's a lot of peer pressure on pilots not to report UFO sightings, but yeah. I would presume that they probably get a lot of sightings. And, oh, yes. And since you are the, the UFO reporting center, I hope that you get some good pilot reports, but you'd be able to tell me better than anybody. Yeah, we do. We get a lot of pilot reports. Some come to mind immediately. Uh, probably the first dramatic pilot report I received was on November 17, 1995, Friday night, I believe it was. We got a call from Boston Center, FAA Air, Traffic Control, Air Route Traffic Control Center in Nashua, New Hampshire, mm -hmm. apprising us apprising the National UFO Reporting Center that their center had received approximately three dozen reports from three dozen wow. aircraft crews, commercial airliners, of an object that had streaked down the coast of Maine, across Massachusetts, across Connecticut, across Rhode Island, down across New Jersey, I happen to know, and it stopped outside an Air Force base in North Carolina. It was a dramatic night, and uh, in fact, people can see and actually, well, I guess see the the text of the official FAA uh, recording, the voice recording, the, the radio communications between two of the airliners. I remember them. They were uh, Speedbird 226 and Lufthansa 405 Heavy. They were talking to the FAA about what they thought had just gone by their aircraft, and you can hear the German pilot of the Lufthansa 747 say in the final analysis, it looked like an UFO, he said. <laughs> well, we took many reports from New England that night and from the east coast of, uh, of the United States, and those uh, the object, the first object that went down the coast it was 22:20 hours 10:20 p.m. when the first one streaked down the coast of New England a similar looking object followed it by about 20 minutes later but the second one was at very low altitude it was seen traveling just above the heights of the trees in at least near York Maine that's one place uh, where it was seen and the first object was seen to rendezvous with a group of objects that had been up over a mountain top in Orange, Vermont. It was a very dramatic night. Another case comes to mind, uh, I think it was September of 2000. Two airliners just north of Dallas-Fort Worth uh, were at cruise altitude, both of them headed for the East Coast, one to Atlanta, one to uh, Florida, Orlando, I think. And they had approached their aircraft three huge, intensely bright lights that executed about a 120-degree turn in under five seconds and streaked out ahead of their aircraft. That was a dramatic case. Another one comes to mind, June 22nd, uh, year 2000. This was very close to you. It was down over Rhode Island, mm -hmm. 12 nautical miles southwest of Providence, Rhode Island, a small single-engine turboprop aircraft with uh, passengers flying from Nantucket up to Manchester, New Hampshire, had an object streak by it, pass within 50 feet of the starboard wing of that aircraft, and it was seen on radar. 
and you can hear in the audio between the pilot and the FAA the conversation about what the pilot had seen. And the object executed in almost instantaneous turn and proceeded to track the airliner. It was a very exciting case. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. Um, now, I know that there's a lot of people, uh, well, there or at least, well, this sort of segues to the question, I guess. Uh, well, back in the day, there was a lot of fear. Uh, there was a chill put over a lot of pilots as far as reporting UFO sightings. But it sounds yeah. like maybe that chill is starting to to thaw a little bit, especially yeah. if, if you're getting a little bit of help from the FAA. Um, so was, would that be your assessment, that, that uh, perhaps the, the, the chill that was put over many pilots as far as reporting UFO cases may be starting to thaw some? Uh, that is my impression, but it's very difficult to hard, to know anything uh, truly absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think people are beginning to awaken as to what government can do when it is unfettered by uh, citizen oversight. Mm -hmm. uh, people are beginning to realize that there is merit to the UFO phenomenon and that the U.S. government has been lying to the American people and everybody else for approaching six decades. They must know the truth. After all, I've collected about 43,000 cases wow. with one telephone, one tape recorder, and one computer sitting on my desk. Can you imagine what the U.S. government must be collecting <laughs> with all their intelligence agencies, with hundreds of billions, perhaps by now trillions of dollars worth of satellites orbiting overhead that can detect when somebody in Siberia strikes a kitchen match, of course they're picking up these. To say nothing of what the distant early warning line or the BMUS line, ballistic missile early warning system line, is picking up and the, the so-called fence across the southern tier of the United States must be picking up with its passive radar. Of course they're picking up these, these events. And what worries me even more than the UFO phenomenon, Tim, mm -hmm. is the U.S. government, which is lying to the American people about the UFO phenomenon. Yeah. The greatest question, my greatest fear, is the fact that somehow, some way, the UFO phenomenon has succeeded in influencing events on the planet Earth. Uh, how they might do that, I could only guess at. But I actually once met with people who had, who occupied positions of considerable responsibility in the U.S. government, and they asked me, halfway through a four-hour meeting, they asked me whether I had ever run across information that would suggest to me or another reasonable person that there could be people in the U.S. government who were in the know with regard to the UFO phenomenon and who were acting in an extra-constitutional fashion, that is, illegally, yeah. with respect to the UFO phenomenon. That, that is the possibility that concerns me most of all. To, uh, to move on to uh, a very key case that I've heard you speak about, we talked about it uh, earlier um, when, uh, when I talked to you before we set up the interview, uh, and that's the Todd Seas case, uh, August 4, 2002. Yes. Uh, a UFO sighting, a man goes missing, uh, a documented case of a death possibly due to a UFO sighting. Uh, tell us what you know about this case because it sounds fascinating. Yes, it is. I was fascinated by it, and you are correct in saying possibly UFO-related. 
I will share with our listeners the chain of events that led me to my interest in that case. I received a case, apparently, I didn't really make mental note of it, I received a written report from an anonymous source that asserted that the source, the individual who submitted the case, together with three fishermen were floating down a river at the base of Mount Montour in Northumberland County, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And they asserted that they had been witness to a craft, disc-shaped apparently, hovering above Mount Montour. They also saw, allegedly, they saw a shaft or a beam of light that connected the top of the mountain to the craft. And they asserted that they saw a man's body being floated up this shaft of light into the craft. Okay? Yeah. Well, I believe I probably read that report and assumed it was a hoax. I assumed in error, it turns out, because several weeks after I posted that report, probably two or three weeks later, this would have made it maybe late August of 2002 or early September, just about four years ago. Okay. A query, an email from also an anonymous source, except for email address, somebody wrote me and just excoriated me for not paying more attention to the Todd C's case and asking why I had not. I quickly wrote back and said I hadn't paid any attention to it because I didn't know about it. And the party wrote back saying, oh, yes, you do. You posted a report about it. Well, I went back to the posted reports, and lo and behold, the writer was correct. I had posted that report, and I said, well, what does that report have to do with Mr. Todd C's? And the party wrote back and said, you haven't heard that his mutilated body was found. And I said, no, I had not. And what had happened was that Sunday morning, August 4th, 2002, Mr. Sees had gone out of his home about 5 o'clock in the morning on an ATV to go up to his family property four or five miles distant on the side of Mount Montour to scout out populations of deer in preparation for the Pennsylvania deer season. Mm -hmm. Well, that is the last that anybody saw or heard Mr. Sees when he was still alive. By midday of that Sunday, his wife had reported that he had not returned home, and he was many hours late. So a manhunt was staged. Some 200 people participated in it, I seem to recall. They had helicopters, horses, dogs, and on foot. And they searched all Sunday. They couldn't find him, although they found his ATV up on his property and his outer garments were neatly folded on the back of the ATV. Huh. They also found one of his boots approximately 60 feet in the air, tangled in the top of a uh, pine tree, I believe it was. Wow. Well, they did not find him that Sunday, and even the bloodhounds, the tracking dogs, could not find a scent leading from his ATV. And the handlers, uh, it was addressed in the newspaper articles, the handlers found that to be very strange because... Bloodhounds are, have very, very sensitive noses. They can pick up a scent that's almost unbelievably weak. Well, they searched, they stopped the search Sunday night, they resumed it Monday. 
the next day, Monday night, uh, Mr. C's son, teenage son, was searching near their family home, and he found what he thought might be a human body, but he wasn't sure. The body was so mutilated that he certainly could not identify it as being the remains of his late father, mm -hmm. but indeed it was. And the body was suspended above ground level in heavy underbrush, and there was a dead rattlesnake beneath the body on the ground. And some people assert that the there was a very peculiar metal object, I believe, clamped to upper the upper arm of the remains. I talked to the medical examiner. He would give me no information except to say that an autopsy had been performed. When I asked him if photographs of the remains had been taken, he said, yes, but you will never see them. Huh. The FBI was called into the case, I am led to believe. I can't confirm that because the FBI hadn't returned any of my phone calls. And when they, they were on site, I am told by a member of the search team, mm -hmm. within a very short period of time, I don't know how many minutes, but they seemed to get there very quickly. They confiscated the remains, and the remains were returned to the family in a sealed coffin. I am told by a member of the family that they were forbidden from opening the coffin, which was sealed anyway, so they couldn't have opened it, to the best of my knowledge. Wow. What happened to Mr. C's, I do not know. Whether he, whether there's any alien participation in his tragic demise or not, I cannot certify. But I, I am told that every member of that search crew, that search party, was told that they should not, they would not talk about any element of this case. And I've made repeated efforts to get people to come forward, and they refuse to make any statement, and they refuse to make any appearance on a public radio program. People can see some of the reports on our website. Wow, that's an that's an amazing case. I think yes, it is. It'll be uh, something that uh, only gets bigger, I think, as as time goes on. As I agree. What happens with a lot of UFO cases? Yes. In uh, the summer of 2005, at the MUFON uh, symposium, you had a proposal for passive radar UFO detection. Oh yes. Actually, um, 2004, two years ago, it was. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, what have there been any advances in your proposal or updates on that? Um, since 2004? Advances only in the sense that I've approached billionaires to inquire whether they would like to not just fund the project, but make their names available to make it possible for members of academia who traditionally shun anything that has to do with UFOs, make it possible for those members of academia to help me build the system. Yeah. And so far, nobody has offered even a scintilla of assistance, not a cent of financing. I am confused. What I have proposed, and you're correct, Tim, and I congratulate you for focusing on this, what I have proposed is a system using passive radar which will resolve the question of whether UFOs are real or not. And in fact, the day after the the paper was published to the MUFON, uh, MUFON website, mm -hmm. I got a call from a senior member of the Central Intelligence Agency. He identified himself. Huh. He said that he had read the abstract of my paper, and he was calling to congratulate me on it and to say that if I were successful, 
<clears throat> in building a passive radar system, I would succeed in resolving the question of whether UFOs are real or not. Wow. He did not say I would detect UFOs. He said I would be successful in resolving the question. So people can read my paper. It's posted prominently on the website at ufocenter.com and satisfy themselves as to whether my reasoning with regard to this type of passive radar system is correct or not. And uh, how extensive would that, something like that be? Would that be like a multi-million dollar operation to set up and run? It sounds uh, pretty extensive. A few tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, that's it? Very inexpensive. In fact, there are passive radar systems operating today, and they're built almost out of people's uh, uh, workbench drawers. They're so simple to build. simply requires a very sensitive FM receiver, it requires a very relatively sophisticated computer that can crunch numbers very quickly, and those are getting cheaper and more available all the time, and the proper software. And you build two or three or ideally four such systems in a large area, and you coordinate the four receivers such that they all measure very precisely when they receive a signal that is being transmitted over the horizon and uh, the reflected signal from a target high in the atmosphere or out, even outside the atmosphere and this information will allow us to detect and track and define UFOs I hope in the very near future. I hope so too that sounds like a, a fantastic proposal yes I hope hopefully it'll get off the ground yeah I hope so too. Now you've sort of alluded to a couple times here uh, the government's role in the UFO phenomenon um, especially the potential for extra-constitutional type uh, activities. Yes. What do you think uh, the government's role is in, in regards to the UFO phenomenon? Well, the U.S. government knows that UFOs are real. I'm certain of that. Uh, they must be interested in it. Obviously, you wouldn't want any other country getting access to that kind of technology because it would make your ICBMs and submarines obsolete overnight. Yeah. They couldn't afford to risk letting another country get that information and that technology. Their uh, surveillance and reconnaissance systems must detect the presence of UFOs on the planet Earth all day long. That is my suspicion. But to get a definitive answer to your question, you would have to go to the government and pose your, your question to the government. Yeah. The problem is, one, you don't know to whom to pose the question. Yeah. Number two, they don't have to respond. Govern the business of government is to lie to its people. And that's what the U.S. government is doing big time with regard to the UFO phenomenon, I believe. And I have the evidence that I think shows that very, very clearly. And then another uh, point that we were talking about discussing for the interview here was the lackluster coverage of the UFO phenomenon by the U.S. Oh, yeah. press. Again, yeah, that's the biggest point of all. There are three questions that I find even more intriguing, more important for human beings than the question of whether UFOs are real. The first one is, why don't the UFOs show themselves clearly? The second question we've already dealt with, why doesn't the U.S. government square with the American people about the presence of UFOs in the near-Earth environment? We've dealt with that. Mm -hmm. The third question is, why is the American press not paying more attention to the UFO phenomenon? It is ultra-bizarre 
Yeah. Uh, people say, well, they're being they're being leaned upon by the government. Well, I don't happen to believe that. There are a lot of members of the press. Many of them are fiercely independent-minded. Yeah. So they're not going to cooperate with the government. So I think we're dealing with a case of self-censorship. Mm -hmm. These people sincerely believe or, in fact, are not even aware that the UFO phenomenon is taking place. Uh, I think they're so busy sitting at their computer in front of their computer monitors waiting for some download from a, uh, a wire service that they've forgotten that a member of the press has to go out into the community to find out what's going on. Yeah. And very few members of the press are doing that. Again, that underscores the importance of a program like yours, Tim. And I do commend you again for your your common sense and your realization that there's not only a story here, but a dramatic story to be covered and an important one. So uh, programs like this are very, very important in my opinion. Oh, thank you. Now, what about the uh, the ABC UFO special? Uh, yeah. That was a pretty big deal last year, and I know that uh, you were featured prominently on there. Yeah. I'm not sure if I've heard uh, any interviews. I may have. I'm not sure now. It's been a while. If I've heard anything from you with regards to the to the show after it aired, I know that you were in good contact with the people who were making the show. So, yes. Um, what did you think of the show and your portrayal on the show? Because you were pre featured well, pretty prominently. Yes. Uh, I was featured prominently. Uh, I was terribly grateful for that. I worked with the ABC News team out of New York City uh, fairly actively over the course of about eight months or so. And uh, so I was not surprised that they featured us. What I was surprised by was two things. Number one, they didn't even mention the biggest UFO organization in the country, maybe the world almost, save for China perhaps, and that is the Mutual UFO Network, which also provided ABC News with copious quantities of information. I talked to John Schusler, who's the international director of MUFON out of the Denver area, mm -hmm. after shortly after the program, and I was shocked that the program had not even addressed that organization, and he was too. In fact, he was very miffed. They had sent thousands of pages of information at the request of ABC News to their offices in New York City. And not a peep, not, a, not the slightest allusion to the Mutual UFO Network, which I thought was particularly inappropriate. Yeah. Well, the other issue was what ABC chose to include in their program relative to what I know I gave them. I gave them the very best information I could possibly provide. Yeah. The best cases, the most well-documented cases, the most dramatic cases, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And many of them weren't alluded to, weren't addressed in the least. I do not understand why. Instead, they talked about foolish uh, sightings by astronomers who admitted with a giggle and a wink and a laugh that the after all the object that they'd seen through the fog was the full moon or some nonsense like yeah. that it just was totally inappropriate and for the life of me i do not understand why abc did what they did it is a total mystery to me as big a mystery as the ufo phenomenon it seems like it followed the classic uh ufo special format which is uh pro ufo for the first half anti ufo for the second half yeah um 
And that seems to be pretty prevalent, especially with these new cable specials that are littering the airwaves as far as basic cable UFO specials go. You yeah, find agree. one almost every night, practically. Um, uh, what do you think of that? Uh, that seems to be the only coverage that UFOs get is these uh, cookie-cutter UFO specials that are on constantly yeah. that don't ever really go anywhere. That's right. They advertise it daylights out of them. Oh, we've got groundbreaking evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they must spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars advertising this upcoming earth-shaking program on UFOs. When it finally is aired, it's just totally vacuous, lackluster. And it doesn't really address the grist of the, of the uh, phenomenon. And I don't understand why they do that. Uh, it may be because they are media people. Media people are different from you and me. They are, in fact, many of them are bizarre, in my <laughs> opinion. They have not a, not a scintilla of common sense, not a modicum of practicality to them. Yeah. And what they should do, if they really want to do a program about UFOs, is hire an expert from the field to serve as counsel and guidance to them, leading them to the very best cases. For me, the best cases are those in which many, many people say, see and report the same thing over a large area, a geographical area, at about the same time of, of uh, day or night. That what that provides you is with is many many independent witnesses to the same event. Yeah. And in cases like that, it's not as though people are seeing a little swamp gas or a crash dummy or any of the nonsense that is traditionally uh, promulgated by skeptibunkers. So I don't know why the press has been so lackluster in covering the phenomenon. For example, look at the crop formations in England and Honda, perhaps a hundred other countries around the world. Uh, they cover these ghastly crimes and trials endlessly. Every night there's a new episode, like a soap opera. Yeah. On these uh, ghastly crimes, but they're relatively minor incidents. Mm -hmm. And yet not a peep, not a, not even a, a bat of an eye towards the formations or animal mutilations or human abductions. What is wrong with these people, I ask rhetorically, and maybe not just rhetorically. It is bizarre what the American press is not doing with respect to the UFO phenomenon. It is, in fact, some might even say it's criminal, yeah. given the special dispensation we extend to the press under the First Amendment to the Constitution. Yeah, it is It is very disappointing, and uh, I know exactly what you mean in the sense that uh, some, that a run-of-the-mill sort of crime can can receive hours and hours and hours of uh, cable news coverage yes. when really it's, uh, you know, just one of countless crimes that seem to happen all the time and yes. not really necessary for that kind of coverage. Like we were saying, you've been in the UFO field for 40-plus years. Yeah. Uh, as you as you've gone through the field and everything, uh, where what direction do you think ufology as a science needs to go from here? Well, um, we we have to do several things. First of all, we've got to get more reports. My estimate, Tim, is that out of a thousand Americans, 
who have been witness to genuine bona fide UFOs or had UFO sightings, out of a thousand such sightings, all ufologists have succeeded in capturing only one report out of that thousand. So the, the real mission is to increase the body of evidence we have by 500 or 1,000 fold. Wow. In order to capture as much of that information as we can. The other thing is we've got to, we've got to interest academia. These are the people who have access to the technology and the techniques and the manpower and the budgets for investigating the UFO phenomenon aggressively. We have to do that. Right now, if a person in academia even reads a sentence that has three letters, UFO, in that sentence, he, uh, might, he or she might risk not getting tenure or not getting a promotion to uh, adjunct professor, or you, yeah. I, God only knows what could happen to this. Happened to Dr. David Jacobs at Temple University in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. He is being penalized for his excellent work, his excellent investigation into the human abduction phenomenon. He has not been credited with all the books he's written on the subject because the university has taken the position that it doesn't apply to his field of history, even though he did the first uh, dissertation on the subject of ufology of anyone in this country. So we have to interest, uh, we have to interest uh, the ac- members of academia. Also, we've got to get people in government who are interested in this field, who will tell the American people the truth about it, as opposed to the litany the steady diet of lies that we're getting from these people. We have stories about uh, reports that are submitted to senators, members of the congressional delegations from all the states. They read these things, and they say nothing about them. This is wrong. Those people have a responsibility to tell the American people the truth about this phenomenon. And finally, uh, I think it will be very important to build a passive radar system to start start detecting UFOs without government serving as intervention in the data. Right now, most radars, not all, but most radars in this country are run by the government. So the government controls the data. This is wrong. We've got to get some individuals, private individuals, running their own systems and reporting to the American people the way the National UFO Reporting Center does. Yeah. Um, and uh, what do you say to the folks uh, in the field who have sort of the perspective that they're like, uh, we have to move on from lights in the sky, uh, that sort of attitude, uh, where that ufology should be doing something different? Not exactly, no. I'm not even sure what exactly. But no, you know exactly what I mean. correct. We have to. Lights in the night sky are impossible to identify, and they're a waste of a ufologist's time. What we need is reports of more dramatic sightings, in which cases people see uh, craft, as they did in the case of the Phoenix Lights in March of 1997, as they saw in St. Clair County, Illinois, January 5, 2000, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Those are the reports we need. But what we need is for the American people to get up off their backsides and write down their reports, not call not think about, not talk about at cocktail parties or in bars about their sightings, but write down their sightings yeah. and 
report them to the National UFO Reporting Center. That's what we need. And until that is done, uh, we have a lot of work that stands before us. And well, what do you think about this new um, movement that's sort of developed in ufology that's geared toward uh, exopolitics and disclosure? Not so much uh, what do you think if it'll happen or not, but what do you think of? Uh, do you think that's a natural evolution of ufology? It sounds like some people are uh, getting off their proverbial dust to sort of become more proactive and uh, and activist oriented as far as ufology goes. Do you think that's necessary? Well. Uh, it's a great idea if it works. We don't know whether it's going to work. I take the position that the senators and congressmen in Washington, D.C. have a responsibility to their constituents to tell them the truth. Clearly, this country has gotten a far distance from that principle, mm -hmm. and I think what the American people are going to have to do is put people into office who therefore have the power to delve into these questions. That's what we need. And we've got to educate member, members of congressional delegations in order that they are coming to ufologists, as once happened to me, uh, coming to ufologists for answers to their questions. That's what I would like to see. Yeah. Okay, um, and then just sort of like the little uh, final question here. Uh, uh, last I heard, you were moving to an old uh, missile silo. You want to tell yeah. us a little bit about the big move and how that went, and, and hopefully you're all settled in there now. You're correct. Uh, not a silo. It is a missile site. Okay. Uh, in March of this year, I, after a three-year pursuit of owning one of these sites, succeeded in purchasing what turns out to be the first underground ICBM missile site that the United States government ever owned or commissioned. It's ironically located in Davenport, Washington. <laughs> That's where it is located, and I am I moved just a month ago to eastern Washington from Seattle, and for the next several months, more like next several years or decades, we'll be working on this site to turn it into my home, and not only my home, but the home base for the National UFO Reporting Center. So our listeners can rest assured and be relieved that all of the UFO data that I've collected will be carefully and safely ensconced in a very secure facility. I speak facetiously, of course. I'm <laughs> sure they're not in the least considered or not the least concerned about the safety of this information. But it is important information. That's where, in the near future, it is going to be occupied. Yeah, well, I'm sure situated. some of us are concerned. I mean, come on. I mean, anyone who's familiar with uh, what I like to talk about a lot on the show, the APRO, the missing APRO documents, uh, we don't want yeah. something like that to happen to uh, your stuff. Yeah. Um, and how can people help out the National UFO Reporting Center? I know you take donations. Um, how can how can they go about helping out? Well, thanks for asking that question. Uh, there are a couple things they can do. One is just pay attention to programs like this and compliment their hosts for having done a program on the subject of ufology. The other thing they can do, and this is most important as well, is if they've had a UFO sighting, don't just think about it all your lives. I've had people call me who saw UFOs in the 1930s, and they waited, gee, 60, 70 years to tell their stories. Wow. Write 
down the information surrounding your sighting. Do not leave this planet, as we all do ultimately, mm -hmm. without having written down your sighting, written black ink on white paper. And preferably, hopefully, they will submit that well-composed statement as to what they saw to the National UFO Reporting Center, and we will post that information. It will be anonymous, of course, as you pointed out at the beginning of this program, and let the world know about their sighting. So that's what I would like them to do. And if they would like to send us a small donation in the range of 5 to $25, uh, they can send it to the National UFO Reporting Center, P.O. Box 700, Davenport, Washington, and the zip code is 99122. Again, that address, National UFO Reporting Center, P.O. Box 700, Davenport, Washington. The zip code is 99122. And they can also, if they encounter other people who've had UFO sightings, encourage them to write it down and submit it. Capture the data. Exactly. It's, I, sit here watching these reports not get reported or these sightings not get reported. It's like being a gold miner watching two-ounce nuggets go out the end of the sloop box. Yeah. It is very frustrating. Peter Davenport, thank you very much for appearing on the show. Uh, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. You're just a wealth of information. Um, I get the feeling we could talk for hours if, uh, if we both had the time. So it was really great speaking to you. Uh, the websites for the National UFO Reporting Center are www.nuforc.org or ufocenter.com. You can find out more information about all the cases we discussed there. You can file your UFO reports there. If you've, if you've had a UFO sighting, as Peter said, you've got to put it down. You've got to send it in. It'll only help us more. So, uh, NUFORC.org or UFOcenter.com. Those are the websites. Uh, should we give all the number, too? Yes, indeed. If you could, please, Tim. Area code 206-722-3000. 206-722-3000. That's our hotline for recent sightings only within the last several days or so. And we always ask people to follow up their telephone calls with a written report. Excellent, excellent. And they should carry that number around with them in the wallet or in their car or something in case uh, in case they see a UFO, right? Yes, indeed. All right. Well, Peter, thank you very much for appearing on the show. I really had a great time talking to you. Well, it's been a wonderful uh, wonderful hour together with you, Tim. And, again, I compliment you for your interest in this fascinating subject and for your having brought it to so many listeners to let them know about the subject as well. That does it for the interview portion of the All of America Audio for this week. Big, big thanks to Peter Davenport for coming on the show. I've been listening to Peter Davenport on the radio for a long, long time, so to have the opportunity to pick his brain about the UFO phenomenon and learn more about the National UFO Reporting Center was just a great opportunity for me and an educational one at that. You can find out more information on Peter Davenport and the National UFO Reporting Center at www.ufocenter.com. There you can look through the amazing number of UFO sightings they have on file or file your own UFO report if you've seen one and you want to get it down on paper or just explore and check out some of the amazing stuff they have there. Definitely check it out, www.ufocenter.com. And now we continue onward with the new tradition we started last week on Banal of America Audio, and that is Banal of America Audio listener feedback. 
And this week's letter comes from Jeff, no hometown listed, so we'll just call him Jeff from Parts Unknown. And Jeff writes, Hello, Mr. Banal. I really enjoyed the Paul Kimball interview you did. I have only recently discovered Mr. Kimball. I found myself being in the camp that enjoys him. He may be a bit harsh when I don't think he needs to be, but we could use more like him. Signed, Jeff. Well, thank you for writing in, Jeff. I appreciate the feedback. And uh, your letter is really indicative of a lot of the feedback we got on the Paul Kimball interview. I'm not sure if that's a testament to the Banal of America audio audience and our style of show, or if it's just that the Kimball haters didn't even bother to listen. But overwhelmingly, the feedback was positive for the Paul Kimball interview, so I was kind of surprised by that. I expected some hate mail uh, regarding some of the stuff Paul said. Maybe they just didn't hear it. I don't know. So kudos to Paul Kimball, and kudos to you, Jeff, for writing in and being featured here on Banal of America Audio listener feedback. If you would like your email read on Banal of America Audio, you have a comment, a question, a guest suggestion, any of the above or more, you can simply write into boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com, or just go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button in the top right-hand corner on the menu, and you will be well on your way to having your email read on Banal of America Audio listener feedback. Moving right along, let's talk a little bit about the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference for It Was Just an incredible time out there in Las Vegas. We have posted an in-depth recap of the speakers, what they were talking about, and that kind of thing, at banalofamerica.com. Definitely check that out. We have a ton of great pictures, courtesy of Banal of America friend Ralph Molesworth, who was there on the scene with us. He documented it in photographs in an amazing way. you got to check those out. As luck would have it, I recorded five interviews on location in Vegas with some of the speakers, Richard Dolan, Nick Redfern, Paul Shatskin, Matthew Toomey, and Dr. Michael Sala. Those are the five people I had a chance to talk to, and we'll be compiling those interviews together soon into a one-off edition of Banal of America Audio that we're calling the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference Special. Just a tip of the iceberg here, Richard Dolan talks about his upcoming book and his sci-fi series, Nick Redfern talks about alien viruses and the Berwyn Mountain incident. Paul Shaskin talks about T-Towns and Brown and Philo Farnsworth, early 20th century inventors. Dr. Michael Sala talks about military whistleblowers. And Matthew Toomey talks about the Lumi Island incident off the state of Washington, which may just have been a UFO crash. So we talked to those five folks at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference in Vegas on the ground reporting, and we're going to have that for you, I'd say, within the next couple weeks. I need to iron out some bells and whistles. I want to see what else I can throw together here for this special. But it's going to be quite a festivus, and you will be well-informed ahead of time when it happens. Throwing out the big thanks, of course, to Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Ralph Moltsworth of BanalofAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. Notably this week, I want to give a super shout-out to Leslie and Chiron. When I returned from Vegas, I was a little out of sorts, and they just had material ready to roll out for us and to keep BanalofAmerica.com up and running while I was trying to figure out what time zone I was in. These two folks are amazing, and I really appreciate it. So hats off to Leslie and Chiron this week. Also, additional hats off to Ralph Molesworth, who served as my wingman in Vegas. Although he doesn't like being called the wingman, he was the perfect wingman in Vegas. Check out BanalofAmerica.com. I can't plug it too much, I guess. 
ton of material up there, in-depth recap of the UFO CRC4 from Vegas, and, of course, the weekly columns, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V. Summer Special Series. I'm hearing rumors that it may be kicking up again for the winter session. And, of course, Ralph Molesworth's awesome pictures from the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. Benallofamerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you are a long-time Benall of America audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series and the website, click the PayPal button at benallofamerica.com. Make a donation. No donation is too small. Every little bit helps. We just recently had quite a wave of donations, uh, and I really want to thank those people who have donated from the bottom of my heart. Your money will be going to good causes like paying for this show, paying for the phone calls, paying for the bandwidth, and pretty much making sure that Benall of America Audio remains free for our ever-growing listenership. If you want to be a part of those folks who are helping to keep the show up and running, click the PayPal button at BenallofAmerica.com. The expenses for this show come out of my pocket and from donations from listeners like you. So if you can help out, it would be hugely appreciated. Next week on Benall of America Audio, it is going to be a wild one. I've wanted to do a Moon Hoax episode for quite some time, and finally I decided when we started putting together Ben All of America Audio Season 2, I was like, let's do that Moon Hoax episode I've been thinking about. And I wanted the best of the Moon Hoax folks, so we went out and got Bart Sabrell. He's the creator of the film A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon. He is sure there was a Moon Hoax, and he's going to tell us why next week on Ben All of America Audio. Plus, he'll go in-depth on the infamous Buzz Aldrin incident when he got punched in the face by Buzz Aldrin. It's quite an interesting story. We delve into the Buzz Aldrin punch and all kinds of moon hoax stuff and moon rumors that sort of are tangential to the moon hoax. We're going to cover all that with Bart Sabrell next week. And on that note, there's not much left to say, folks. If you're an American, I hope you have a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday. If you're not an American, I hope your Thursday's cool anyway. You'll be hearing from me next week, November 25th, 2006, with Bart Sabrell talking about the moon hoax. Until then, this is Tim Benall, signing off.